0: There are many strange happenings in the wild country of British Columbia, and none more so than the singular event of coming into contact with a Sasquatch. In the indigenous tongue of a native people, the males are known as the Bukwas, and the females are named Sanaqua. The people who seek them out are known as Sasquatch researchers, And the following reports are from the files of one such man, Canada's preeminent Sasquatch researcher and seeker of the truth, Thomas Steenberg. Now, Sasquatch, I mean, you go, everyone's gone there to have a murder or something. Great place. But it's called Sasquatch Inn for a reason. Because this is the area behind it, up north along the west side of Harrison Lake, where the name Sasquatch comes from, as I was saying earlier. This is where it all began. This is where the non-First Nation people of Canada got got their name for the creature from the Chehalis people, Sasquatch. is the people who adopted the Sasquatch as the symbol of their nation. And you'll find it go up and down, you'll see this symbol all up and down. And personally, I think it's one of the best ones they got going. Guess here.
1: The <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you one thing for sure. There have been stories of Sasquatch taking food off picnic tables, uh, campers, that kind of thing. It's happened
1: before.
0: <laughs> Not as friendly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah, there have been stories of shame campers looking in windows, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of thing. Like you were telling me earlier, you thought you may have seen one outside your window. But uh, does you, your property back onto forest areas? Well, when, back then, like, and
1: grandpa's, their house is way, way far back. Mm-hmm. And it's like a million. Like, you can barely see through it, but you see those really are bad
0: mm-hmm. so, so one day um, around America, we
1: went out there. Mm-hmm. We found
0: a at in art no footprints. You saw footprints? No, we didn't. No, okay. Well, if you ever do, I'll just tell you, like I tell everybody, don't go anywhere in British Columbia without a camera. Oh. Never. <laughs> anywhere. Always care. I don't care what type of camera it is. Always have one with you. You're in a picnic area in a campground and you have to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning to go to the outhouse, take your camera with you. You know? Because that's the kind of thing and that's the kind of time it will happen. You know? And, of course, if you just if you don't get a picture, you're just another person who says he saw a Sasquatch and you had thousands of dollars. Now, the man you're seeing here, his name is J.W. Burns. John Wilson Burns. He wants teacher on the Chehalis Reserve in the 1920s. He was a Caucasian man, and he got a job teaching, teaching in the First Nation School on the Chehalis Reserve in the 1920s. He was also a government Indian agent. Now, he became very friendly and got to know a lot of the First Nation people there, and they got to the point where they trusted him, and they told him things. And he heard stories about this thing that they called Saskahearyan hey, Well, it depends how you want to pronounce it. Which they basically described is they said, was a large race of hair covered people that they themselves had driven into the mountains many generations before in battle. And that every now and then you would see their fires on the, on the top of Morse Mountain. And they had a few stories of. Uh, uh, Sasquatch, uh, especially, you know, the females, to be avoided dreaded one story of a local lady in 1871 who claimed as a young woman she had been captured and spent a number of years or a number of months with a family of them up in a cave in Morris Mountain, who she later escaped, gave birth to a hair-covered child, which died very soon afterwards, and she lived the rest of her life until she passed away of old age in the early 1930s, and that's another one of the classic table in that area. But J.W. Burns, he was a prolific writer, he used to like, write articles for publications in Canada about life for, uh, in the First Nations Reserves and the areas and their culture and their legends and their own history. And he wrote an article for Maclean's Magazine in 19 that appeared on April 1st, 1929 that was entitled Introducing B.C.'s Hairy Giants. And like I said, he misspelled the word, he was the word, he called it Sasquatch. And that name caught on with the non-First Nation population in Canada, and it's been known as Sasquatch here ever since. So our name predates, precedes the American name, Bigfoot. A good 30 dollars. Wow, 1929. You get That's how the name came about. A misprint and a mispronunciation by this man. Uh, there's three amigos. But we also have another classic tale that got a lot of attention when it happened, but it was so far back no one really knew what they were dealing with. Man, the man in this picture, I, I was there, I was holding him. Bill Miller, an American friend of mine who does a lot of research on Mary blunt who now lives in Chilliwack, and a uh, fellow named John, who was the curator of the museum in, in Yale, British Columbia. Do you all know where Yale is? I just thought Okay. Now, here's the story of what happened in Yale. Today, Yale is a town of barely 80 people. Barely 80 people. You blink, you'll miss it. Go through, you drive north through the Fraser Canyon, or the But in the 1880s, when the gold rush was on, Yale had a population of 18,000. It was a boom town. It was as far as the old steam wheelers on the Fraser River could get. They couldn't go up the river any further than that. So the old wagon road that was basically built on the side was considered a wonder of the world in those days, it was built right in the cliffs north of Yale, going all the way up to the bath. Now in 1884, like I said, it was a boom town, and it was a bad town. It was a terrible place, violence, it was a wild west town, a lot of people like to think that somehow the Canadian west was more civilized than the American one. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. In many ways, it was much worse. There wasn't a week that went by in Yale town without a gunfight, a stabbing, a murder, you name it. It happened. So when something like this caught attention in, in 1884, it, it was only, you know, by word of mouth, very popular in the community for maybe a week, then there'd be another gunfight or another stabbing, and people would forget about it. But in 1884, the, the Victoria Times College published an article. What is it? In which, in that article, they described a the capture of a creature that was found lying unconscious along the newly built railway line that they were building right on the old wagon road. trans Rail rail line. Which was still one year away from completion it was still a big gap near Revelstoke at this time so you couldn't couldn't get across the country on it yet still one year away from completion but this section was finished and a train coming down heading towards Yaletown saw the stake laying unconscious right around here somewhere between the cliff the track and if you were to, look to the left here to see your drop into the Fraser River is a torrent, no matter what time of year it is at this point. And that's tunnel number four. And according to the article, as the train was approaching tunnel number four, they saw this figure lying unconscious on the tracks. They brought the train to a halt, and they blew the whistle, and whatever it was, it sort of revived, and it started trying to climb the cliff. And the men all gave Chase, and they got hung up on a ledge. Knows which ledge, but it's a low ledge, like right around here with that. But some of the men managed to get up above it and they started throwing rocks down on it. Knocking him unconscious, apparently, where he fell back down to the ground by the tracks, and they immediately trusted it up, tied it up, and threw it in the bags in one of the rail cars and headed into town of Yale. The creature was allegedly removed from the train. At the train yards just on the extreme north end of town, almost the whole town was gathered in the main station to get a look at this thing. But in order to avoid the crowd, they took it off at of the rail train yards on the north end of town, and they put it in a cage. But Dr. Harrington, the town doctor, examined the thing, and he had no idea what he was dealing with. I mean, they said it was rather chimpanzee-like, but it had long legs like a human being. It stood just over four, and a half, four feet tall, had extremely massive arms, could bend thick pieces of wood and twist them in half. And a, a man could drink milk with an absolute relish. Ate all the vegetable that man to get it. They held withheld meat from it, as the doctors was afraid it might make a while. But as I said, they had no idea what they, what they were dealing with. Remember, the term Sasquatch was still years in the future. And this is 1884. So the Victorian Times columnist published this article on the article says, what is it? And he said, oh, we, because, you know, the racism of the time and stuff, oh, they just caught a wild Indian, you know, and they wrote it off that way. Oh, they caught a, a weird bear, or they caught this, or they caught that, you know, and a lot of people later on thought the whole Jacko story, which is the name that was given to the creature, Jacko was perhaps a bit of tabloid journalism, which was common in regular newspapers in those days, especially when it was a slow news time. Imagine the late 1800s, it was quite a few days like that. However, newspapers usually didn't share tabloid stories in those days. And I took a look through the archives. And I found in the Calgary archives an article from the Winnipeg Free Press at the same time that basically repeated the story. So that's two different papers from Western Canada repeating the same tabloid story. That usually didn't happen in those days. And since then, a couple of colleagues from the United States, like one from Colorado and another one from uh, what they call it, the Oregon Territory, they sent out pictures telling the story of Jacko, the creature captured near the ABC. And again, why would they how would the Americans hear of a tabloid story up in Canada when it took weeks, weeks, for anyone to hear about anything? So, but the biggest problem with Jaco is we don't know what happened to him. The men who captured him, where it was reported, were going to put the creature on display in a sort of carnival-type atmosphere and make their fortune. But the only two ways to get out of, out of there in those days was one, go to Fort Vancouver and take a steamship, or go across the border into the United States and go across the continent on their transcontinental railway, which was finished by that time. But we don't know. A Famous First Nation chief Chief Kitsilano said he saw a creature being displayed in the Vancouver area in 1884 that he believed was Jackal. But I have not been able to find any media or any mention of such a display in 1884 in Vancouver. You think there would (coughs) be? There's also the story of the nuns up at, the, at, the, at the nunnery in Bishop Cove that were handed to this creature, and the first thing they did was shave all his hair off, and he immediately died. No way to confirm that story one way or the other. There's the, the popular theory introduced by the late Grover Cranks that P.T. Barnum, you've all heard that name, of Barnum and Bailey Circus. He was the biggest showman in the North American continent at this time, and it, a freak show. You know, they had the Siamese twins. They had the famous Tom Thumb, the the midget. They had uh, all kinds of characters like this. And it just so happens that that same year, 1884, a few months after the so-called jackal capture occurred, he started advertising a new attraction called Joe Joe the Dog-Faced Boy. And Grover had the theory that perhaps Jojo, the original Jojo, was this creature. But for some reason, P.T. Barnum, after two months of advertisement, he never published any pictures. And all of a sudden, Joe the dog faced boy was removed from all his advertising for a period of about eight years. And P.T. Barnum, being a man who never let a good name lie, he used the name again and published pictures. Only this time, it was obviously a picture of a young man with that rare affliction where hair grows all over the body and stuff like that. And he had him dressed up as a Russian Cossack. And this wild well, story about how he was found, raiding camps in the Crimean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean P. T. Barnum's favorite line was there's a soccer born every minute. He's the man who tied a fish to a monkey's cadaver and called it the Fiji Mermaid. You know. That's what he was. This is P. T. Barnum. And so we all Grover wondered what was the first Jojo. I mean, did he get his hands? I mean, if there was one man in North America at that time who would have paid good money for something like this, it was P. T. Barnum. However, P. T. If the thing died on P. T. Barnum, I wouldn't stop him. He would have probably stopped it and put it on display anyway. There's no record of it, so we don't know. That's the biggest problem with the Jocko store. We don't know what happened to Jocko. Some people say he probably died on transit, maybe taken to Europe or Asia on ship. And when animals died on board ship in those days, they wasted no time and throwing them overboard. There's just no He disappeared from history. So we don't know what happened to John. But that's another great classic tale from Western Canada here. And, of course, another, of course, one more, all the way back to 1850, David Thompson crossing the Rocky Mountains, the first time they're jazzed. Made a note in his journal about these large footprints he found in the snow that the, his First Nation guides were terribly afraid of. Now, whether or not they were large bipedal tracks, we don't know. He didn't mention claw. A lot of thought they were just a huge bear track. We we'll have no idea because we weren't there to see them. With. And of course, no pictures were taken. We just have this description from his journal. And of course, that was the same year the cat, 1924, Albert Ostman, he was the man who claimed he was kidnapped, spent a week with a family of these things, up around Tobey Inlet. Have you, know, you all heard that story? That was uh, 1924, Albert Ostman was a young man, he got dropped off by boat ahead to of Tobey Inlet, after a few days, so something, I'm going through this real quick, uh, a few days, something hanging around his calf, disturbing his stuff, he decided to get into a sleeping bag fully dressed. He put his boots in his rifle in his sleeping bag and he was determined to catch whatever it was that was going through his stuffing. at But he fell asleep. When he woke up, something was picking him up in his sleeping bag like a sack of potatoes. And I threw him over his shoulder and walked off of him. He said he was in that sleeping bag nearly dying of suffocation for almost four hours as it went over Hill and Dale, carrying them, sometimes dragging them along the ground. And when he was dumped out, he found himself in a family of, of uh, four five of these creatures. The, the old man, he called it, the one that picked him up, the one he called the old lady. And uh, actually, poor, excuse me, and there was one young male one and one young female one there. The young male one was very curious about him, the young female just hid from him all the time, just would peek out at him from behind the bushes. And he was initially uh, dropped off in this horseshoe-shaped canyon that had a creek run through this very narrow entrance. He saw no signs of tool use or anything. The only thing he said is they basically had what looked like vegetation mats they, they slept on, which he thought was more of a case of layers and layers of vegetation being crushed together rather than anything being woven. And oh, looked like having coincidence. The creature that picked him up in sleeping bag he also decided to pick up his backpack drop in there, so he had some cans of food and stuff there. He said, they never tried to harm him, but they wouldn't let him go. And he had no idea what they wanted. So he decided, he realized after a while that they were impersonating him. He'd make his own tea and coffee and meals by the fire, and uh, the fire he'd made, and uh, you know, he had this tin of snuff, which is kind of like chewing tobacco. He take a little pinch of it. he called the old man to pick him up and look at him out of Take another pinch, it's nip. And then this big male to grabbed the whole can and down the whole contents and swallowed it. And he said it wasn't long before that thing was grabbing its head and rolling over, obviously sick and in distress. And then it grabbed his coffee can, and his coffee cup, and it downed all that, browns it off. Just trying to try and relieve the taste of that and its mouth or whatever. And it got even sicker. So uh, the others were paying attention to what he called the old man writhing on the ground. Ostman grabbed his pack, grabbed his rifle, and ran out the entrance to this cannon. You know, the one he called the old lady did try to chase him. He turned and he fired one shot over her head when she retreated. Now, according to Albert Osman, he spent one night and one day wandering through the trees when you heard the sound of a logging operation in the distance. And by the time he came out, he was so dehydrated and in bad shape, he didn't tell them what had happened to him. All he said was he told them he was a prospector and he got lost. And the logging company took care of him at the camp for a day or two before they sent him back by steamboat back to Vancouver. And Albert Osman kept this story to himself until all the publicity about the Sasquatch came out in 1957 when British Columbia was celebrating its 100th bicentennial stories going on in the press about Sasquatch, and he just said, Well, I was living a week with the family, these darn darn things. He didn't use the word darn, but you get what I mean. And he was interviewed by John Green and Rennie Dehinnon and Ivy T. Sanderson and that's and he, fortunately, not too long after he came up, he wrote it all down in a script, the whole story. And his attitude was that you can believe me or not, I really don't care. McClane's Magazine offered him money to publish the story. He said, no, you can publish it. You don't have to pay me anything. This is what happened. This is what I saw. This is what I experienced. If you believe me, fine. If you don't, I don't care. And he maintained that attitude to the day he died. He died in 1973. He lived his whole life in Portland, Langley. I had an idea. I mean, I, I said, how do you to find information on something like this if it was true because he came out in the Salmon arm Shell Inland. Well, if you look at a map, the distance between the head of Tobin and uh, that area, he had to cross three mountain ranges to get there, you know, yeah, yeah, that true. sounded real, real straight, right? He had to cross these shell inland to get there too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, unless he went around the northern tip of it. He wouldn't have done that in a week. Yeah, I know. But it all comes down to how far did this thing carry them when it first picked them up? He said it he was, he was moving the whole time. He was being dragged over here and there while in the sleeping bag. But that's a heck of a distance. So I had the idea, back in the early 80s, when I was riding right with the tip news, I thought, did logging companies in 1924 keep log books? You know, did they make log books in their daily activities? So I, some did. A oh, lot didn't. So I looked in the office. Big Man and down was still going in those days. They were in the area. There were other companies in the area. They had logbooks of other companies in the area. I just went to did any logbook mention that their men been coming across a lost prospector in the Salmon Arm, a Sheldon led, on a summer day in 1924? Just to see. Of the three logbooks I looked at, none of them said anything about coming across a lost prospector in 1924 in the Salmon Arm or something. However, I also found out that even though I looked at the logbooks of three companies, there were almost 40 logging operations in the Salmon Arm area at that time. So the odds are he came out and got picked up by someone who wasn't keeping logbooks is indeed possible. Also, knows I couldn't prove it. And I had another idea. In his original story, he said an elderly native gentleman dropped him off by boat in the head of Heeland. Well, I always wondered what did this elderly native gentleman do when he went back in three weeks? He was supposed to come back in three weeks and pick him up. What did he do when he couldn't find him? Did he tell the RCMP? Did he make a report of some kind? But uh, all efforts to look into that came to a dead end. Most of it said there wasn't. Yeah, most of the police officers I talked to said they uh, they, uh, they had no idea. any record of something like that happened in 1924 would have been long lost by now. So again, another classic tale, but because if you can't really follow up on any of this stuff, there's no way to check on it. Okay, dear listener, that about wraps it up for now. My name is Jerry Matthews. You can reach me at yellowcoyote at talus.net. Thank you for your interest, and until the next time... Keep searching.